Hey, Cremaholics, Kenzie here to bring you another brand new episode. This week, I had the opportunity to speak with Leslie and Bill McAllister. They are the parents of Taylor McAllister. And before I go any further, I just wanted to say that I have seen a lot, I've heard a lot, and I have researched many different cases. But Taylor's story has hit me way harder and in a different way compared to all the other cases that I have seen or heard of. Taylor was just 22 years old when her body was found in an alley off of 63rd Avenue in St. Petersburg, Florida on December 22, 2016. The medical examiner on Taylor's case ruled her death homicide by asphyxiation by another person. But the St. Petersburg Police Department is trying to say that Taylor's death was caused by an overdose. And because they are saying her death was an overdose, they have done nothing to bring Taylor and her family justice. Throughout the entire hour that I spoke with Bill and Leslie, I kept having to apologize for having tears running down my face. Bill and Leslie are the most kind-hearted, genuine people I've ever had the pleasure of speaking with. They have spent every day since Taylor's death fighting for justice for her, her girls, and their family. Her justice system is being crippled with injustice, and so many families like Taylor's are being affected by it daily. Something has to change, and Holly and I want to be a part of that change, just like Bill and Leslie. Leslie and Bill, I just want to thank you both so much for being with me today and taking the time to tell Taylor's story. You know, we've told Taylor's story, I can't count how many times uh, now. We love doing this because we want everybody to know who she was as a person and and not what the police department has painted her out to be. Uh, We always tell people that that Taylor just had this. She was an old soul. Um, she, She was so loving and compassionate towards others. She always wanted to help anybody that she could. We had received phone calls from her saying, hey, dad, I got a friend here who's having some problems at home. Can they come stay with us for a little bit? And uh, there was always, it seemed like somebody at the house uh, staying with us. And, you know, that was just her. She had this way that drew people in as soon as they met her, they they just instantly fell in love with her. She she just had that that way about her. I mean, it, it was just unbelievable. She would meet you once. To me, it's it's like her signature hug. Um, I, I've seen it in pictures, and and I felt it a, a thousand times. And she could meet you one time, and the next time she saw you, she would run up and she would take both of her hands and wrap them right around. Your, your neck and just squeeze you. And, and that's just who she was. She, she could just, people say, oh, they could light up a room. And that was Taylor. And I can't count how many times she got me in trouble with Leslie because she, we, we are very sarcastic and just very joking. And no matter what situation it was, Taylor would, she would make the most boring situation fun. And there was always a movie quote that was coming out of her mouth. I can't count how many times Leslie would say, stop, knock it off you two. That's enough. <laughs> but it was just her. That's just how she was. And, and there's nobody that, that doesn't miss her, that knew her. I mean, everybody has been devastated by her loss and it's destroyed our family. And it's just, it's, it's unbelievable how many people she has impacted and how many people now with what we're doing, she's impacting. Not only 
was Taylor known for her loving and bubbly personality, but I have seen several of the videos you guys have posted on Facebook of her playing guitar. She was so talented. When did Taylor start taking an interest in guitar? About 14 years old. Um, she saved up her money and she bought a guitar. And um, my grandfather played the guitar. So they kind of started together and played a little bit. She was such an amazing, raw talent. She never had a lesson in her life um, on how to play the guitar. Um, and that was something that Taylor and I bonded over with was was music where we just listen to lyrics like lyrics mean so much to both of us and when I look back now at her song choices um it just it's almost like a a, a message because you know the songs that she learned and the songs that she played they were all over the board but it's just the the lyrics that she she listened to it and she felt it and I can see that in her videos and that helps us kind of still be able to feel her and um, and have those memories, you know, of her. When we were planning her service, which was a horrible thing to do, uh, one of the questions um, was, you know, what song choices do you want to play, you know, during her service? And so we actually had a, a friend of ours um, make a CD of all her songs. And so during her service, uh, and her viewing, um, that's what was played was, and it was probably about an hour and a half worth of songs. Um, and it just, it meant so much. Taylor's voice was absolutely amazing. I keep finding myself going back and watching the videos of her playing guitar. Just how talented she was captivated me. But from what I have read, she was also a pretty competitive powder puff player. She played all four years and her competitive nature just with that was crazy. She got taken out for one play or didn't start for whatever reason. She just lost it. I mean, because she had to be on the field. She was always trying to hype the girls up and a, a true leader out there. Of, and she just loved it. Like Leslie had just mentioned, music was her, her main passion that, that she had. All around, Taylor was a pretty normal teenage girl. She played guitar, and she played sports, and she had a great home life and a great upbringing. Did you guys ever notice any signs that Taylor may end up having struggle with addiction? I feel like there's such a stigma around people with addiction, and I think that's what surprises a lot of people about Taylor's story is that she was just this all-American girl who ended up having an addiction. So was there any signs leading up to Taylor's addiction? There were no real signs of it at all, um, which is why it was it was so surprising to us when, when you know, after she was 18 and, and all of this started. Um, she was a normal kid. You know, she, she was very artistic, stayed in her room a lot, didn't party, didn't, had a, had a really close group of friends, um, but they were mostly at our house no drinking, no drugs, no hard parties. We really didn't have any warning signs prior to this going so so sideways. CD that Leslie was just mentioning, there's actually a YouTube memorial video that plays. And when people see that and they hear drug addict, they 
they're just blown away that it's 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 not your quote unquote stereotypical uh, attic, and we are we we're just a normal everyday laid back family. I mean, we did family vacations. Leslie and I've been together for 26 years. We do boating and beach and and all the stuff that anybody else would do. Um, barbecues and and you know just just your average normal family. And Taylor was always. Uh, they actually, in high school, she had a nickname. They called her Straight Edge because she was such a homebody. She wasn't a drinker. She was, she didn't do any of that stuff. And she didn't care. She 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 actually thought it was a compliment. Um, she just loved to be home with her family, with her, her younger sisters. And, you know, when that's why we've, we've never hidden her addiction because, you know, we, as much as we want justice for Taylor and, and somebody held accountable for her murder, our hope is that maybe it helps another family or, somebody that can see this and go, you know, Hey, you know, I'm going through the same thing. And, and we've had people reach out to us and, and ask us questions and just couldn't believe when they find out when they see her pictures, they they just can't put them together. Taylor was married during this time from what I have read. And it said that she had met her husband at a Japanese restaurant. Did Taylor already struggle with her addiction prior to meeting her husband? I couldn't find too much on that relationship. Are you okay with speaking about that? It's no secret that she was married. Taylor was very impulsive and they, they met, they started dating. And then within months, I mean, I, I think probably three to four months, they got married. And going back just a, a little bit, Taylor started using drugs right around when she was 18-ish. One of the things about Taylor what was so great about her is, is she was incredibly honest. And she told us about that. We thought uh, that it was just almost like a recreational experiment type thing. Um, she didn't. She said, you know, it wasn't an issue. And when she started working at the restaurant and, and then she met Josh, you know, they dated for a little bit and quickly got married. So much surprise our, our way when we saw that and found it out. Did Taylor and her husband get married because he was going to be leaving for the Coast Guard and getting stationed somewhere else besides Florida? He got stationed in Seattle and then she moved out there with him. And then shortly after she was out there is when she got pregnant. She found out she was pregnant and that he was going to be deployed. We said, you, you have to come home. Um, you know, you're pregnant, you don't know anybody out there, we don't want you to be alone out there, and so uh, she did move home and lived with us. Um, we took her to every single doctor's appointment, um, and I, at that age, I guess it's policy that you have to drug test females that are pregnant that are under a certain age. I don't know if it's a state of Florida thing or what. Um, But I would take her to every appointment. Um, I would go back with her. um, And she never, never tested positive. There was never any issues with the pregnancy. Um, So there was no kind of warning sign um, there at all. But yes, she did come home. She did have the babies, you know, here in Florida. Um, She had a a C-section, super tiny little girl, and to carry two babies. Uh, So she had a C-section. And then when... They prescribed her pain medication after the girls were born is that's kind of when we really noticed something isn't right because she just she was taking them so fast and I know that it's a painful 
you know, surgery, but they were, they were gone so, so quickly. The medication, the pills were gone so quick. And that's when we really started to wonder what's, what's going on here. After Taylor had her baby girls, I know that she had stayed in Florida. Did her husband ever move back to Seattle at his duty station? Or did he stay in Florida too with Taylor? Uh, He went back and was there for a short period of time. He was also battling addiction. uh, And there was a, he got discharged from the military and then he moved back. And I think that was probably within a year of the girls being born and he moved back to Florida. Battling addiction together, there was never a time that it was what you would consider a normal traditional marriage. Um, everything was just very um, quick and toxic and they fed off one another and one would start to get clean and the other one would, you know, drag the other one back. And it just kind of went back and forth that way for, you know, a couple years. So even when they were together, it was like they weren't together in, in the traditional sense. They would get into fights and arguments and one of them couldn't stand the other one and one would move home and the other, you know, it, it was just, It was like that pretty much for the duration of their uh, time together. Not too, too long after Taylor and her husband had separated permanently, Taylor was murdered and her body was found in the alley on December 22nd, 2016. Are you okay with speaking to me about what happened on that day? When they told me at my place of work, um, it was two detectives and they said, we're sorry, Mrs. McAllister, to tell you we found Taylor deceased this morning. And I don't think there's any way to even describe that feeling. Um, I know you hear, you know, of loss and, and, and what people say, but it is a feeling that you can't even try to put in words. Um, I know immediately I, I felt, and this may sound strange, but I felt like... Um, my life and Taylor's life just completely flash in front of my eyes, like from giving birth to her to that moment, like every moment just flashed through me. And I was mad, angry, sad, shaking uncontrollably. It's just every emotion you could even think of all at the same time flooding through you. So once I processed what they said. Um, I I asked, um, "Where is she? What what hospital is she at? I, you know, I need to go." And they said, "She's not at the hospital. She's she's at the scene that we found her." And so I asked questions. Did what happened? Is this? I said, "Is this? A, is there a gunshot? Is there a stabbing? What what happened?" And they said. Um, there's no signs of trauma um, to her, no obvious, no obvious signs of trauma. However, we're treating this as a homicide, which is why she's still at the scene, which made me completely angry um, because when they told me at my work, it was about 1130 um, in the afternoon and so that made me very angry that my child was still laying in an alley. Um, so they explained to me that they were processing the scene with, you know, forensics has to come out. And the response to me was there's no obvious signs of trauma. 
but we are treating this as a homicide. And so I, we, we had no, we had no idea what, what happened. Um, and even throughout the afternoon, I was driven home, you know, after that I was, I was driven home and, um, you know, that's the first time Bill and I had seen each other since, since the news. And it was just this, it's a, it's a parent's worst nightmare. You can't, you can't even explain the, the feelings. But throughout the day, it didn't, we didn't get any other information. I think it was probably about six, seven o'clock that night. Uh, I called the detective that had come to my work and I asked, can I, can I see her now? Is she at the medical examiner's office? Can we go? Can we see her? Can we see her? And they said, we, we cannot allow you to see, see her, um, that they were going to be doing an autopsy the next morning, which would be the 23rd and that we, we could not go see her and we begged and pleaded and, and it was, um, it was just horrible to just, I mean, the word helpless doesn't even describe uh, that day. I am so sorry that both of you had to experience those feelings. As a mom, I could never imagine what that would feel like. At what point did you guys get the autopsy back? And what did that autopsy say the cause of her death was? February 6th of 2017. It was ruled a homicide by asphyxiation by the hands of another. And what has angered us so much is the detective's investigation stressed heavily the importance of the medical examiner's ruling. They said what, whatever he says is, is gold for, for the investigation. That's the way we're going to pursue things. And at this time, they had already told her that told us that they suspected she had overdosed. And being an addict, you know that that's a possibility. They were anticipating it was going to come back as an overdose. And when it didn't, I think it really caught them off guard and they panicked. And that's when they, they realized we didn't do certain things that should have been done in this case in the very beginning. Now we're, we're going to have to scramble to try to get something done the, the way that this should be investigated. After the medical examiner made the ruling, the finger pointing started at him. The same detectives who were saying, you know, whatever he says is, is what we have to go with, and it's the most important part of this case, turned into, he took too long, he doesn't know what he's talking about, this should have been ruled undetermined, and that's when we knew that this case was going to be just destroyed. Um, we had no faith in St. Petersburg Police Department from the beginning of this investigation. It originated in the Sheriff's Department's jurisdiction, and that's who we wanted to investigate it. And St. Pete, uh, that what they told us is they had to get um, basically approval to buy from the Sheriff's Department to, to continue the investigation. We, we were just sickened because we... St. Petersburg Police Department has the absolute worst reputation in this county for doing and handling cases in this manner. It is beyond shocking to me that the police would choose to ignore what the medical examiner had determined was her cause of death. And since the police were trying to say that her death was an overdose, do you know how they came across the name Robert Butler and how they found out information about him and how he was linked to Taylor? We had never heard the name Robert Butler. 
ever. Taylor had moved out of our home in August of 2016, went down the path of tough love. We had had her in detox. We had had her in rehab. We had done everything you can imagine to try to get her clean and to get her life on, on track. But in August, we had said, we are, her sisters, you know, were still at home. They were five and 13 at the time. You know, her girls, um, you know, were two. So we chose to do tough love and told her, go get your, you need to get yourself straight. We can't fix you. You have to fix yourself. So at that point, we did not know where Taylor was from August until December. We did not know exactly where she was. When December 22nd came and they told us about finding Taylor, we're at a loss. We didn't know who she was with, where she was, who she was staying with. Um, and it's at that point we learned about the name Robert Butler and started kind of doing our own research. When they went to his home, they questioned him on Taylor's murder and he said he didn't know anything about it, that he only saw it on the news, that she didn't live there, she didn't stay there, which was a lie. Uh, she was living there. But they also noted fresh scratches to the bridge of his nose, to his forehead, to both of his forearms, and a bruise to his right shoulder, a fresh bruise to his right shoulder. Now that is documented in the police report. I don't know what other evidence you need. You have a dead body in an alley that you say there was no obvious trauma, but if you've seen those scene photos, then you know that there is a lot of trauma. And then to be to question someone with those injuries like Robert Butler had, I don't I don't understand how a warrant wasn't issued right then. But that is the first time we heard about Robert Butler. And then it was weeks later, probably more later, that we learned about the other suspect. Her husband knew that she was staying there. He's a career criminal. I mean, he wasn't really hard to find. I know from the very beginning, you guys had absolutely no help from the same Petersburg Police Department. And from what I saw, Leslie, on Facebook is that you have very bravely went to the jail to visit one of the men that were involved with Taylor's death. Can you tell me a little bit about that and what was going down during that time and how you were feeling? Because to me, that's just so brave and courageous to be able to face the man that had something to do with your daughter's death. We tried at the very beginning. I know Bill had just said, you know, that we don't have and we didn't have faith in St. Pete. But when your 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 daughter dies, you you try to believe that law enforcement is doing the right things. And so we followed everything they told us from the very beginning. They told us, don't talk to the media. Um, don't talk about Taylor's case. It's an open investigation. You know, they gave us all of these things, of course, recommendations, but we followed all of those things that they told us. And so once that autopsy came back and we knew that it was not an overdose, we knew that this was a homicide. And now we knew all of the people that were involved um, and felt that St. Petersburg Police Department was not doing the best for Taylor. Um, I took a chance and kind of requested a visit with um, Deontay Baker, Deontay Atwater, whatever name he wants to go by that day. Um, I took a chance and put in a request for a visit and he accepted. So I went to try to ask questions. I, I didn't know what the police asked. I didn't know, you know where the investigation was. I wanted him to look me in the face 
and I wanted to ask him those questions. It was probably one of the hardest things to sit there and do. Um, but, you know, I've always said, even from, from the beginning, I know and I knew that the day Taylor was found that she wasn't an overdose. And I just, I don't even know how to explain it, but a mom can feel that. You kind of feel that it wasn't and somebody hurt her. And I knew that from the second they told me that. And, um, you know, St. Pete was treating this as an overdose. And my daughter, our daughter deserves justice. So I wanted to go and I wanted to talk to him and ask him those questions. It got further into where they were about to make the arrests um, on these misdemeanor charges. The, uh, the individuals, because there were what we thought initially were three individuals that were called by Robert Butler. It turns out there's a fourth individual that got brought up in a federal trial, but St. Pete Police has no um, intention of talking to him. They didn't want to hear anything about that, and that was admitted by Deontay Baker in the federal trial. But during that, that visit, Baker's statements pretty much have stayed consistent with what he, he said his involvement was from the, from the beginning. There's been some, some inconsistency in, in certain things of maybe what, what uh, gas station they went to or who was driving the car at this particular time. But for the, the important part of the investigation, his has pretty much remained consistent. And if, in part of that video uh, of the visit, one of the things that stuck out to me and, and Leslie both after she came back and she listened to it was him talking about the controlled phone call that St. Pete had him make to Robert Butler. And it's in the police report that they had him make a controlled phone call to ask him what he did to Taylor, to ask Butler. So Baker calls Butler and says, what did the police have been questioning me all day? what did you do to that girl? And his response was, come up to the house and I'll tell you. After that, there's nothing, no follow-up to that paragraph in the police report. Nothing. They, And in the jail video, and this is where Baker's statements have, they're, they're consistent with what he told Leslie and what's in the police report. So we, we feel that he's being honest about this. He said that they had no desire whatsoever to solve Taylor's murder investigation. They weren't interested in it at all. St. Pete police were not interested in Taylor's murder at all. Only drug charges and drug information. Why on earth, if you have an individual that he was willing to cooperate in any way to find out what happened to Taylor, why would St. Pete not allow him to go up and wear a wire and, and possibly record this confession by Butler? Deontay Baker, Curon Archer, an individual by the name of uh, Demond Desmond Washington. He goes by both names. Uh, he's also referred to as Debo a lot in the um, recorded statements and the interviews. Were down, according to Baker, Archer, and Butler, they were down in St. Pete. Butler was at his home with Taylor in Palm Harbor, which is about 25 miles away from where Baker, Archer, and Washington were at. Butler calls them and says, Taylor's sick. You guys need to come pick her up and take her to the hospital. They said, just call 911. And he said, no, I don't want to do that. He didn't want police or EMS in his house because he's a convicted felon. He had drugs, firearms, and ammunition in there. 
So he said, just come up, just come up and take her to the hospital. So they claim, Baker and Archer claim that they went up there thinking Taylor was just sick or that she was going through withdrawals and that they were just going to take her to the hospital or possibly rehab that got brought up at one point in the statements. When they got there, they found Taylor naked on the bed. She had urinated on herself. She wasn't talking. She was just moaning and she couldn't move. And they said she was in severe pain. So they started, according to them, freaking out because of what they expected to walk into was not what they walked into. They told Butler to call the 911 to call 911 again. He again refused and said, no, just take her to the hospital. They didn't want any part of it because they said that they were three black guys with a white girl who's naked. And how is that going to look? So we're not doing anything. They said Butler finally agreed he would go to the hospital with them. Curon Archer went out, got into Butler's truck, and Damon Washington, they claim, picked her up, put her in the back of Butler's truck, and Butler was not getting in, in the car. He was supposed to go get dressed. He was just refusing to come out of the house. So Archer takes off with Taylor in the truck. As he's driving, he doesn't know the area, doesn't know where she's going or where he's going. And then at one point he said he passed a hospital, but there were police around or in the parking lot. So he panicked and he started heading back towards St. Petersburg. At some point he claims Taylor fell over in the car and he thought she died because there was an odor where he thought she had defecated. And he calls Baker, they all meet up and they determine that Taylor had died and they were gonna put her on the side of a gas station, but it was there was too much activity, they said, and it was too lit up. So they started arguing about what they were gonna do with her. They wanted to, um, what in the jail visit video, you Baker's references, what they wanted to do with her, he couldn't allow it. She would have never been found. Um, we don't know if they were gonna throw her off the Skyway Bridge or if they were gonna throw her, there's a lake down there that's infested with alligators that you know, they could throw her in or buried her. So Baker said he, it was his idea to put her in the alley so she would be found. After they dumped her in the alley, they went back to Butler's house, burned their clothing. They sent Curon Archer to the store to get lighter fluid, burned their clothing, destroyed surveillance footage, gathered Taylor's belongings, put it in black garbage bags, and put it in the trunk of their car and then drove to various apartment, uh, um, various dumpsters in an apartment complex and threw them in there. The way that they explained it in their interrogation videos as well as what's written in the police report is that all of them thought that Taylor was going through withdrawals, um, something was wrong with her or she was super high, they weren't really sure. And so I just wanted to make a point that one one police report, one arrest report says that Taylor was deceased upon their arrival. Uh, that Baker said when they walked in that Taylor was deceased when they came to Butler's house. Well, then there's a second report that's written exactly the same, but that statement is changed and it says Taylor was barely conscious when they arrived. Um, but I would like to, to make a note that, again, Taylor was not an overdose. 
um, she and I asked Baker these questions in the jailhouse visit. I wanted to know, did she say anything? Did she, what was she doing? You know, what they thought was what looked like an, an overdose or just somebody that was completely out of it. Um, you know, Taylor had a stroke and if you have a stroke and it was a, a bleed, a brain bleed, and if you have that, you can't speak, you urinate on yourself, you can't, you don't have any control of your movements. She could have been alive, but she could not have fended for herself. She couldn't, she couldn't move. She couldn't ask for help. She couldn't fight back. She couldn't say, please don't put me in this truck. She couldn't say any of that, you know, because I, I believe that, that she had that stroke because Burt Butler strangled her, put his arms around her neck. Uh, and I believe she fought back. And I, I think her airway was cut off long enough for her not to die, but to cause that stroke and those injuries. But to, you know, Baker and uh, Archer, it, it looked like an overdose or a, a withdrawal symptoms, which can look like stroke. So I just wanted to note that really fast. She may have looked like an overdose. She may have looked like a withdrawal, but Butler did something to her before Baker and Archer and Washington got to that house. They've been consistent with, you know, they said that they were actually getting high down in uh, St. Petersburg when they got the call from Butler. I think when they walked into that, that house and then saw her in that room, far worse by the way that they've described it than they, I mean, they thought, you know, this is just a girl who's sick, we're going to run to the hospital and, and that'll be the end of it. So that's why Butler knew exactly what he was doing, getting them involved and not getting in that truck. Because if you listen to his statement, his recorded statement, there, there's some telltale signs in there. Um, even though his conveniently cuts off around 42 minutes right when they started asking him about Taylor. About a year after her murder and that she was found, they charged Curon Archer, Deontay Baker, and Robert Butler with a misdemeanor of failure to report a death. They also charged Robert Butler with possession of ammunition uh, by a convicted felon, which is a felony charge, and felony possession of marijuana. The Felony ammunition charge was dropped, even though in the police report he admits it was his. It was found in his bedroom. He admitted it was his post-Miranda, and they just dropped that charge. St. Pete police blamed the sheriff's department deputy on that. The marijuana charge, they ran, he pled guilty. They ran that concurrent to the um, failure to report a death. So he paid a small fine and got to serve that time while he was serving his fatal report of death um, charge. Archer served, he was sentenced to six months. He got, uh, he served about four months. Butler was sentenced to a year. He served about eight months. And Baker was being held on federal drug charges. So he served the full year and a little bit more because of the hold of the federal charges on them. There's been no other charges uh, on anybody. DeMond Washington, they said they spoke to him. It was recorded, but they can't remember if there was issues with the recording. Um, and then the next time we can't find it. We know it was recorded, but we don't know where it's at. And then the fourth individual that was brought up in federal court by Deontay Baker was never questioned at all. Those arrests 
um, that Bill just mentioned, those those came, as he said, a year after Taylor's murder, just shy of a year. Um, but that is when they decided to serve a search warrant on Butler's residence. That's when they decided to seize Butler's truck. But it was a year later. Um, like I mentioned before, with, with Butler's injuries that they noted themselves on the day that Taylor was found, I would have thought a warrant would be issued uh, prior to that. But a year a year later, I, I don't really know what they would be expecting to find, um, especially when it's in their own police report, as they did their investigation, that, you know, they knew that they burned Taylor's clothes. When she was left in that alley, she was run over by Butler's truck. They knew. I mean, you, you see the tire mark. The day that they found her, you can see the tire marks. You know that she was run over. You just questioned Robert Butler and saw fresh scratches to his face. Why would you wait a year later? Had the tires been changed? You know, anything in that truck's going to be gone. I mean, they detailed that truck. They went and detailed that truck on December 22nd. That is also documented in the police report is they detailed that truck inside and out. That, that truck transported Taylor from Palm Harbor to St. Pete, um, to that alley. Um, so I just, I don't understand. We were thankful when they made arrests and we thought, oh, this is finally it. This is finally it. They, they have something. But then to learn that it was a, a misdemeanor charge of a failure to report a death, was it was just dating. It falls right in suit with this police department. Shannon Halstead with St. Pete Police Department. I had asked her three different times, why did you guys not serve a warrant? Why has no warrant been served? Why has no warrant been served? And she gave three different answers. One, the first one, and even though they said that they were treating this as a homicide, the first one, uh, the first answer she gave was, uh, we didn't feel that there was, we really needed to serve one. Uh, the second time she said, well, we wanted to, but we didn't have enough to serve one. And then the third reason she, she gave, she blamed it on the assistant state attorney uh, prosecutor. She said that we tried to get one, but he refused to take it to a judge. So when they served a warrant almost a year later, um, we had a meeting with St. Pete, three, three different meetings uh, earlier in this year, and we asked them about that, and they have no answers uh, because they've, they've told so many lies amongst themselves that they can't keep it straight, and they know that we will sit and listen and take word for word, and we remember it and we write it down, and that that scares them like crazy because of how we are with this investigation, and we were told, well, the warrant that was served, that wasn't even for Taylor's case anyways. It was for federal charges. But nobody, the state attorney's office won't get back to us. They, they, they refuse to contact us. The, we've contacted FDLE. We've, contacted, we've asked St. Pete to, to produce any paperwork. We've had our attorney request paperwork. They leave certain things out. So there's no doubt they're hiding and covering things up. And I think they are have everybody else is pretty much doing the same thing for them uh, because we have found that we're not the only family that this has happened to. Uh, we're just extremely vocal about it and, and we're not going to go away. But uh, I mean, they, they completely destroyed this investigation. I mean, they it, it is it's almost like a, a really bad movie when you look at all the facts of this case. And we've had attorneys, law enforcement, doctors, friend, every, anybody that you can imagine have, has read through this case file and everybody comes to the same conclusion. And it's 
there's something going on here. Something is not right in this case. Something is being covered up here. There should have been arrests made. So St. Pete now has, you know, they just cut us off, cut, cut us off completely. Hearing how badly they have handled Taylor's case is just so mind-blowing to me. Do you guys feel like the St. Petersburg Police Department had used Taylor's struggle with addiction as like an escape goat to get her case closed quickly? Absolutely. From the first week that Taylor passed away, I've been in civil service myself for 20 years. So there are a lot of contacts that, that you make and that you have. And so I know for a fact that there were St. Pete Police Department officers speaking to other civil service people advising that McAllister's just an overdose. That's going to come back as an overdose. She's just going to be an overdose. And we mentioned that to St. Pete at one of the meetings, and they said they're aware of it and that they've reprimanded that officer's which makes sense because they were waiting for that autopsy to come back to show that it was an overdose, which is why I think they didn't get a warrant because it was go- it was going to come back as an overdose and it was going to be case closed. Once it didn't, piece of evidence was gone. It had been almost two months. Every- what's going to be left now? Um, I have thought, Bill and I have thought from the beginning as well, if you look at St. Pete's record, their homicide cases, I mean, they're over 200 unsolved homicides. However, they go after drugs, 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 drugs. And I believe from the very beginning that Taylor's case was used to try to come, to try to make this huge drug bust, some kind of drug ring, some kind of drug circle. And Taylor's case was just put on the back burner. And in the end, they arrested Baker on drug charges that went all the way to federal court and they had no evidence. They had no drug. They had just word of mouth that he was selling to Butler and all that stuff. So it, it makes complete sense to me that, yeah, we have a girl, but she's an overdose. We can find out where these drugs are coming from. And hey, look, it's St. Pete PD, and we're going to make this huge drug bust. And that never happened. And our daughter is the one that's left now as a victim. Her, her children will never know their mother. Our girls are devastated. I mean, our family's been torn apart all because you can't do your job, St. Pete. Again, this all just really shocks me that a police department can get away with this. Don't you guys even have her toxicology report that had stated there's absolutely no way Taylor could have overdosed? That is correct. Yeah, the only thing in there uh, that was found was cocaine metabolite. The medical examiner has been very good to, to our family and to Leslie and I. He actually sat down with us and spoke to us directly. And we have asked him every question that could come up. And he said, you cannot overdose on metabolites. Your body has already broken it down. There's no effect of it. There's nothing to overdose on. He said she could have taken that days before. So overdose, there's not a a possibility of her overdosing. He said this was done by the hands of another. Somebody did this to her. You do not just fall over in a car and die. And St. Pete, they they had officers when they were talking about in the beginning, oh, this is just an overdose. They had officers going around saying she's a junkie whore who OD'd. I mean, disgusting, despicable comments to be made about any victim. Her addiction doesn't mean she was worthless. To St. Pete, she was. And that's that's what this whole case ended up being is just 
to them, this is just a worthless junkie. So let's try to get some drug charges to make us look good in the media. And that, that's how they treated her. So it's unbelievable that a police department gets away with what they get away with. And we just can't believe it. Leslie and Bill, the fight that you two are fighting and the strength that you guys have is just amazing to me. Do you two have any plans moving forward to ensure that Taylor and your family receives the justice that you all deserve? We are not social media type people. We, I mean, we hate Facebook and maybe it's just because we're older. We saw the value in it uh, for us getting Taylor's case out there. So that's why we made our page. And her, her case, especially recently, has exploded with people sharing and outrage when they see when they have seen these crime scene photos uh everybody is sharing so we know we have no faith in st petersburg police department we have no faith in fdle florida department of law enforcement people have reached out to them we've reached out to them their response is we don't investigate police departments the florida attorney general ashley moody has pretty much a copy and paste response bernie mccabe the state attorney in this these counties uh Pinellas and Pasco refuses to even contact us. St. Pete Chief of Police, Anthony Holloway, the last meeting, he said, well, Taylor's case is a cold case now, and it's just going to sit in that file. We will not speak to you anymore. We don't do anything with cold cases uh, unless somebody walks through that door with information. And the only time you're going to hear from us is on the year anniversary where we'll give you any update. As we were concluding the meeting, he walks over and he quietly says to me, uh, just like you say you're going to protect your daughter, well, I'm going to protect my people. If they're doing their job, you have nothing to protect them by. And that is why St. Pete has the reputation they do. When you're being run by a department like that with somebody in charge that's making those types of comments, this is the result that you're going to get. But we're not going to stop. Uh, we're, the next thing that we're planning on doing, we're going to continue doing uh, the, the Facebook. We're going to continue doing social media with Instagram and Twitter and whatever we can to get her story out there. We're hoping to get national exposure to her case. We do have investigative discovery. The ID channel uh, has recently reached out to us. So I think that's going to be a big help. It needs to be out of the hands of St. Pete. And if that doesn't happen, then you know we're going to look into the legal side of things with obtaining an attorney, pursuing uh, that route as, as high as we need to go with it and whatever course of action we need to take for this. I know neither one of us will stop until we get justice for her. And we are incredibly thankful, grateful to people like you that are helping us get her story out. We thank you very much for this. People say, how can you, how can you post these pictures? How can you, you know, just move on, just grieve your daughter? Well, when there's no justice, you can't grieve. I mean, we grieve every single day and we cannot we cannot move on because there is no job. And we, just like you said, we have met so many moms and dads of homicide victims that just, they can't fight anymore because they just keep hitting walls. Well, we have hit every single wall so many times and it just makes us more angry and more determined. And I know that some parents can't do that. They don't fight, but we're definitely not going anywhere. And I don't think until or if, and I wish, don't wish this on anybody, but until you have a child that's been murdered, no idea the, the lengths that you will go, things that you will talk about and post. And it's not, it's because we loved our child, you know, and, and we're not going to give up on this fight.
Leslie and Bill, I know that I have thanked you both probably a million times for speaking with me and telling Taylor's story. But again, thank you both for being here today and speaking with me and getting your daughter's story out there because Taylor does deserve justice and so does her girls and so does your family. And it disgusts me how horribly her case is being held and how much injustice there is in the St. Petersburg Police Department. Our entire justice system needs to change. And I hope that Holly and I can help get the word out there about Taylor's story. And I hope that we can be a part of the change and that your family does get justice. So again, Bill and Leslie, thank you both for speaking to me today. Crimeaholics, please, I will have multiple contacts listed in our Crimeaholics Facebook discussion group for you to contact and try to put the pressure on these people to get Taylor's family the justice she deserves.